Let's return to John chapter 13. John chapter 13 this morning. This is the first of five chapters devoted to Jesus' final night in the upper room. And when you consider all that Jesus must have done and all that he must have preached, surely this scene must be of monumental importance if John devotes so much attention to it. Five chapters. And last week we gave our attention to two truths in this famous scene. The first concerns love as the foundation for gospel mission. And we will return to that as we work through the final night. The second concerns service as a prerequisite for exaltation. And this second truth warrants considerable development today. So verse 1. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and by the way, the Father there is the Ancient of Days that we just sang about. The Ancient of Days had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God, the Ancient of Days, and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taken a towel, tied it around his waist. And he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with a towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, The one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, Not all of you are clean. In verse 3, Jesus knows the Father has given all things into his hands. And that is a reference to his imminent exaltation with all authority over heaven and earth. He will be exalted to rule all the nations forevermore. Psalm 2 speaks of God placing his anointed on Zion and summoning the raging nations to kiss the sun. Daniel 7, which refers to the Ancient of Days, speaks of the Son of Man coming on the clouds and coming to the Ancient of Days. And he is exalted. And he is given, Daniel says, an everlasting dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. And on trial before the Jewish Sanhedrin, later that very same night, Jesus says, From now on, 
you will see Daniel 7 fulfilled. Well, then how should Jesus prepare to receive the kingdom? Jesus, in our passage, assumes the role of a Gentile slave and washes the disciples' wretched feet. Do the disciples understand? No. Verse 7, what I am doing you do not understand. But afterward you will understand. Four days earlier, Jesus rode a donkey right up to the city gate. And John admitted his disciples did not understand these things at first. Why is their Messiah riding a donkey and not a war stallion? Why is he washing people's feet? This is embarrassing. Has he come to Jerusalem in triumph or defeat? One of the reasons the disciples do not understand Jesus' actions is that they had been arguing for weeks right up into the upper room over which one would receive the highest position of honor. Who gets those seats at your right hand and your left hand? And they do not understand that at his right and left hand will hang two criminals when their Messiah is lifted up as a suffering servant. The disciples' misunderstanding prompted Jesus to declare in John's Gospel, listen to this very carefully, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship, but not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as one who serves. I am among you as the one who serves. That was the same night in the upper room. The disciples were thinking in Gentile categories about Gentile kings. The greatest is the one attended by all the servants, right? The greatest is the one getting his own feet washed, right? That's how we would think. The disciples, again, were thinking these Gentile worldly categories and they could not comprehend their own Messiah. How, though, had they misread Jesus' intentions? And I wonder whether we, too, might misread Jesus at this point. Maybe we should re-examine the Old Testament Scriptures and work back through the Old Testament the way Jesus worked back through the Old Testament once he had resurrected from the grave. If you recall, in Luke 24, we read of the resurrected Jesus explaining how all the Old Testament, Moses and all the prophets, did indeed point like an arrow straight to him. They had simply misread it. 1,400 years of Jewish history pressurized this startling scene in the upper room. But we may have missed it. 1,400 years, but like an impending hurricane suddenly being blown out to sea, the passage will redirect the disciples' ambitions in a whole new direction. A direction they don't understand as of yet. Verse 7, what I am doing you do not understand. But when he resurrects, wait a minute, afterward you will understand. 
So I'm really concerned to take another week and then make sure that we're not making the same mistake the disciples did. Do we really understand how all this fits together? Do we understand how the momentum of the Old Testament really just pours right into the upper room? I want to take a week, all right? We will make forward progress next week, but I want to take a week and just go backwards. We're going to go back to the Old Testament, and I want to see how the Old Testament just really prepares us for Jesus coming to Jerusalem on his donkey and riding into the eye of the storm. What happened? Let's turn the clock back to the book of Judges, chapter 2. Judges, chapter 2. Can we turn there? We're going to do lots of turning today, all right? But I think you'll appreciate this once we're all done. Judges, chapter 2. Judges is a dark story of Israel's failure to obey Yahweh after entering the promised land. Chapter 1 describes the failures of Manasseh, Ephraim, Zebulun, Asher, Naphtali, and Dan. God raises up judges to save Israel after numerous cycles of apostasy. But as soon as the judge dies, the people return to idolatry like a dog to its vomit. And Judges 2 and verse 19 says... But whenever the judge died, they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers, going after other gods, serving them and bowing down to them. They did not drop any of their practices or their stubborn ways. And part of the problem, as you read through Judges, is actually the judges themselves. Despite great victories, the judges were morally compromised. Men like Gideon or Samson, the lecherous judge. Part of the problem was also the Levites. The Levites perverted tabernacle worship and led people into idolatry. Let's skip ahead to Judges 17. And I want to look at two stories today of Levites behaving badly. In Judges 17, a man named Micah makes an idol, as well as a shrine, and the accoutrements of pagan worship. He then went out and hired a Levite to be his personal priest at his pagan shrine. In verse 12, chapter 17 says, And Micah ordained the Levite, and the young man became his priest. And it was in the house of Micah, where he didn't belong. Then Micah said, now I know that Yahweh will prosper me because I have a Levite as a priest. Well, the scheme didn't work. The tribe of Dan, who had earlier failed to possess the land, came looking for a place to settle. When they discovered the Levite and the idol, they plundered the shrine. So skip over to Judges 18 and verse 17 and notice what happened. The five men who had gone to scout out the land went up and entered and took the carved image, the ephod, the household gods, and the metal image, while the priest stood by the entrance of the gate with the 600 men armed with weapons of war. The Danites then persuaded the Levite to come along and serve as their tribal priest. Verse 19, And they said to him, keep quiet, 
put your hand in your mouth and come with us and be to us a father and a priest. Is it better for you to be the priest to the house of one man or to the priest of a tribe and a clan in Israel? And the priest's heart was glad. He took the ephod and the household gods and the carved image and went along with the people. Well, how on earth do you explain this gross violation of the Mosaic law? Well, look at Judges 17 and verse 6. Here's how the story is prefaced. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Chapter 18 and verse 1 reminds us, in those days there was no king in Israel. And now I'll turn to Judges 19. And here we have a second story of a failed Levite. And verse 1 reminds us, in those days when there was no king in Israel. This Levite takes a concubine who proves unfaithful. She abandons him and returns to her father's house. Four months later, the Levite goes in search of her. And after finding her and spending a few days with the woman's father, he sets about to return with his concubine. The traveling party then takes lodging for the night in the home of a man in Gibeah. This is a town belonging to Benjamin. And what transpires in Gibeah that night eerily parallels an earlier night in a place called Sodom. Look at verse 22. As they were making their hearts merry, behold, the men of the city, worthless fellows, surrounded the house, beating on the door. And they said to the old man, the master of the house, Bring out the man who came into your house, that we may know him. Well, the man, appalled by the intent of these worthless fellows, responds in an equally heinous way. Verse 24. Behold, Here are my virgin daughter and his concubine. Does that remind you of Lot? Let me bring them out now. Violate them and do with them what seems good to you. But against this man, do not do this outrageous thing. Well, the offer didn't satisfy the worthless men. But the Levite thrust his concubine out the door anyway. Verse 25 But the men would not listen to him, so the man seized his concubine and made her go out to them. And they knew her and abused her all night until the morning. The next morning, the Levite finds his concubine dead on the doorstep. And in an act of barbarity, verse 29 relates, And when he entered his house, he took a knife, and taking hold of his concubine, he divided her limb by limb, into twelve pieces, and sent her throughout all the territory of Israel. When the tribes received the mutilated pieces of this woman's body, they responded by launching a civil war against Benjamin. Judges 20 relates the story. After two unsuccessful battles, the tribes launched a third and nearly exterminated the entire tribe of Benjamin, burning their cities with fire. Only 600 men survived. 
Well, suddenly the tribes regretted their actions. However, they had vowed that none of their daughters would marry a Benjamite. So what could they do to save the tribe? Well, the inhabitants of Jabesh Gilead had not participated in the war with Benjamin. So the tribe sent a raiding party to slaughter all those of Jabesh Gilead who had any kind of sexual relations, and then carried off 400 virgins to marry off to the 600 Benjamite men. And one wonders why they were so intent on keeping their vow but had no trouble slaughtering and butchering their neighbors. This is so warped. Friends, this savage scene is so barbaric, so grotesque, so morally primitive, one wonders why it's included in our Bibles. Like, why do we even have to read that? What's the answer? Well, look at the final verse of Judges. This is your answer. Judges 21, 25. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Just read the stories. Everyone does what's right in his own eyes because Israel doesn't have a true king. Here is the theme of the book of Judges. Israel needs a truly righteous king. That's all you can conclude when you get to the end. Israel needs a truly righteous king. That, in fact, is a major theme, not only in Judges, but a theme that runs from Genesis all the way through Revelation. All the nations need a truly righteous king. When everyone does what's right in his own eyes, the world descends into idolatry, paganism, rape, sodomy, civil war, murder, savagery, and anarchy. It's a brutal place. And with this awful scene in mind, let's turn ahead now to 1 Samuel chapter 8. 1 Samuel chapter 8. Samuel has been judging Israel. And he's been doing a decent job. But now he's old. And his sons are a disaster. The text tells us they took bribes and perverted justice. The people therefore demand a king like all the Gentile nations. The middle of verse 19 says, But there shall be a king over us, that we also may be like all the nations. Now understand, ultimately, God does intend to give Israel a king and to establish a covenant with Israel's most illustrious king, a man named King David. The Messiah must come through a line of kings. The Messiah is a king. That's what the Messiah, word Messiah means. He's an anointed one. He's a, king. He's a king. So God does intend to give him a king ultimately. But the people's ideal king doesn't exactly measure up to God's standard. You recall what Jesus said in the upper room? The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them. That's what they want. They want a king like all those Gentiles, but not the sort of person that stoops over and washes people's feet. Samuel, therefore, informs the people what a king will do. And in a word, he will take. Let's read verses 11 through 18. Samuel said, These will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. 
he will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. And he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest and to make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He will take the tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give it to his officers and to his servants. He will take your male servants and female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to work. He will take the tenth of your flocks, and you shall be his slaves. And in that day you will cry out because of your king, whom you have chosen for yourselves. But the Lord will not answer you in that day. Now that verb, take, is repeated six times. And that is exactly what happened. Now, we have six large Old Testament books that constitute a whole large section of the Old Testament canon. First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles, and they largely concern these kings who take and take and take some more. They were all takers, hardly any different than those Gentile kings. And when we examine the history of the kings, we are sadly disappointed. I mean, Saul began well, outwardly he was a good choice, but he ended in total disaster. David was Israel's greatest king, a man after God's heart. But his affair was notorious. His sons were a disgrace. His rest of subjects provoked a civil war and nearly a second one. And God forbade his building the temple because he had so much blood on his hands. We're tempted to think that things were better off than they were in the days of the judges when there was no king in Israel and everybody did what's right in his own eyes. But then again, maybe not. I mean, you read those books and it's like, um, there's still a lot of people doing what's right in their own eyes. Read all six books and you will discover the same truth. Israel still needs a truly righteous king. And now turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 2. After David came Solomon. Solomon made Israel great again following the civil war. But if ever there was a narcissist and a spender, it was Solomon. If 1 Samuel 8 emphasized the verb take, Ecclesiastes 2, 4 through 8 will emphasize the subject, I. I. Ecclesiastes 2, verse 4. I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted them in all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I had also great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the sons of man. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. 
Also my wisdom remained with me. And whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure. For my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil. Eleven times Solomon says, I. His was a life of supreme indulgence. But did Solomon build those houses and those oriental gardens single-handedly? Of course not. It's called slave labor. It's called taxation. He took and he took and he took and he took some more. And what's the outcome? Well, let's turn to 1 Kings 12. All right, I told you, lots of passages. 1 Kings 12. One of Solomon's great concerns was that he would build an empire and leave it all behind to a fool. And that's exactly what happened. If Solomon was a taker, his son Rehoboam decided to even take some more. Let's pick up the story in 1 Kings 12 and verse 3. 1 Kings 12, verse 3. And they sent and called him. And Jeroboam and all the assembly of Israel came and said to Rehoboam, Your father, that's Solomon, made our yoke heavy. Now therefore, lighten the hard service of your father. See, that, that's what was going on in Ecclesiastes. Solomon said, I, 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 what? who was doing all the work? Lighten the hard service of your father and his heavy yoke on us and we will serve you. He said to them, go away for three days and come again to me. So the people went away. So what will Rehoboam do with this request to lighten the load of Solomon on their shoulders? Verse 6, then King Rehoboam took counsel with the old men who had stood before Solomon, his father, while he was yet alive, saying, How do you advise me to answer this people? And they said to him, If you will be a servant to this people today, and serve them, and speak good words to them when you answer them, then they will be your servants forever. Well, have you ever heard such advice given to a king? Was there ever a son of David who first modeled what it meant to serve before he was ever exalted to a throne? Well, not Rehoboam, verse 8, but he abandoned the counsel the old men gave him and took counsel with the young men who had grown up with him and stood before him. And he said to them, What do you advise that we answer this people who have said to me, Lighten the yoke that your father put on us? And the young man who had grown up with him said to him, Thus shall you speak to this people who said to you, Your father made our yoke heavy, but you lighten it for us. Thus shall you say to them, My little finger is thicker than my father's thighs. And now, whereas my father laid on you a heavy yoke, I will add to your yoke. My father disciplined you with whips, but I will discipline you with scorpions. Foolishly, Rehoboam takes the counsel of these younger men who likely have a vested interest in lining their own pockets on the coattails of the young king. Just go on taking. Take some more. Make the yoke heavier. 
unlike Christ's yoke. And at that moment, ten northern tribes rejected Rehoboam and split the Davidic kingdom apart. So, are you starting to appreciate the momentum that's been building for centuries toward an upper room when David's son suddenly stoops to wash the disciples' feet? Such a thing was unheard of. So how does the story end? Well, let's turn to the last chapter of the Old Testament, but don't go to Malachi. Let's go to 2 Chronicles chapter 36. This is the end of those six books concerning the kings. How'd that kingdom end? And keep a crucial point in mind, we are actually turning to the final chapter of the Old Testament, that is, the Jewish Old Testament. Theirs does not end the way ours does with Malachi. It actually ends with 2 Chronicles 36. And it's really helpful to read the Old Testament this way, the way a Jew would. How does their Bible end? They don't accept the New Testament, so how does their Bible end? How does the Bible the disciples read end? What were they looking for when Jesus came in on his donkey? What greets us at the end of the Old Testament is a grim scene in dire need of resolution. Verse 17. Therefore he brought up against them the king of the Chaldeans, who killed their young men with the sword in the house of their sanctuary, and had no compassion on young man or virgin, old man or aged. He gave them all into his hand. And all the vessels of the house of God, great and small, and the treasures of the house of the Lord, and the treasures of the kings and all of his princes, all these he brought to Babylon. And they burned the house of God and broke down the wall of Jerusalem and burned all its palaces with fire And destroyed all its precious metals. He took into exile in Babylon those who had escaped from the sword. And they became servants to him. And to his sons. And to the establishment of the kingdom of Persia. Now what if those were the final words in a history of the United States. Or of your nation. Wherever you might be from. Our sons are killed. Our daughters are violated. Our parents are ravaged. Our church is reduced to ash. And we are slaves in a foreign land. That's the end of the disciples' Bible. That's the end of the Bible for any first century Jew. It ends with the destruction of David's dynasty, the destruction of Solomon's temple, the end of Israel's dreams. It ends right there. Now, there is a faint ray of hope when the chronicler proceeds to tell us that Cyrus, king of Persia, let the people return to build their temple. But fast forward hundreds of years to Jesus' day, and Israel lies still under Gentile dominion. For 400 years, the Jews had witnessed a series of freedom fighters aspiring for the messianic office. 
claiming to be the true Messiah, the Maccabees, the Hasmoneans, the Herodians. And Jesus said, many, many more false Christs will come. But Israel remains a Gentile vassal state when Jesus comes riding in on his donkey. And the fact is, right up to the present hour, the Jew today cannot turn a page in his Bible to the good news of a messianic king according to Matthew and Mark and Luke and John. Unless that is, he is willing to embrace a wholly different kind of king. A different kind of Messiah than they were expecting. Here's a king who went everywhere preaching, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He preached that for three years and then he stooped over to wash the disciples' feet like a Gentile slave. And the next day, he was dead. So, with all this pin-up Old Testament momentum, let's return at long last to John chapter 13. All right? No wonder the disciples are confused. What is he doing? Certainly, they were looking for the king, the Messiah, the anointed one, the Christ. And nine months earlier, Peter had correctly identified Jesus as the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the living God. That's right. But ever since that time, he and the others have been arguing among themselves over positions of the highest honor in the kingdom. Who's going to get those seats? And Luke's gospel tells us they kept that argument right up into the upper room where Jesus stoops over and washes their feet. And that's why Jesus not only washed their feet, but Luke tells us he rebuked them for looking for another Messiah who would come like a traditional Gentile king. Here's what he said. The kings of the Gentiles exercised lordship over them. But not so with you. I am among you as the one who serves. They were looking for the kind of king that Samuel predicted. He takes your sons. He takes your daughters. He takes the best of your fields. He takes the tenth of your grain and your vineyards. He takes and he takes and he takes some more. But Jesus washes their feet and exclaims, I am among you as the one who serves. Clearly, Jesus viewed service as a prerequisite for exaltation. Service comes first. And do the disciples understand? No. Verse 7, what I am doing you do not understand now. But afterwards you will understand Well, listen to what Jesus asked the disciples afterwards, after the resurrection. Was it not necessary that the Christ, the Messiah, should suffer these things and enter into his glory? Suffer first? Suffer? Well, where was that written about the Messiah? 
The answer is it was written in the prophet Isaiah. But as Aslan and Narnia said to Lucy, in your world I am known by another name. And Isaiah, Messiah, is known also by another name. Suffering servant. Suffering servant. And at the resurrection, the disciples suddenly understood. That's why Peter at Pentecost suddenly stood up and proclaimed the crucified Jesus... God made him the Christ. God exalted him, making him the Christ. At the resurrection, God made the suffering servant the Christ. Service all along was God's prerequisite for Jesus' exaltation as the Messiah. Service, not merely foot washing, but in fact suffering as God's suffering servant was God's necessary path for Jesus to become the Messiah. And only afterwards would Peter say, okay, now God has made him the king. He has made him Messiah. And here was a king who did not come to take and to take and to take and to take some more, but a king who came to give. And that's why when Jesus stood up from the floor resumed his place at the table. He took bread and he broke it and he gave it to his disciples. And he said this, this is my body which is given for you. I didn't come to take. I came to give When you embrace Jesus as king, you embrace the Messiah who first gave his own body for you. Now, friends, what is the application? Well, in a way, I was hoping we were celebrating communion this week, but this is not October yet. Here's part of the application. Next week is October 1st, right? Can we take a week and really prepare our hearts for communion as we reflect on this passage All right, sometimes I think we approach a communion table and it's, oh, so last minute. You walk in, oh, there's the plates. Oh, we must be doing communion today. When I was a kid, I used to see those plates and think, oh, the service is going to go along. Totally wrong attitude, right? Prepare your hearts over the next week for communion. But is there more application to it? Well, let me suggest to you that, yes, there is application. And Jesus himself will answer that question for us as we just keep reading. So as you prepare for next week, and you just go ahead and read the rest of the passage. Let's just read, almost without comment, Jesus' answer. Verse 12. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? And of course, the answer is no. But Jesus continues, here's the application. You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. If the Lord modeled service for others, well, what does that mean for us? 
Verse 15. For I have given you an example that you should also do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Are you greater than Jesus? Unless you are greater than Jesus, the servant king, then your only response to this passage is to serve others. Christianity does not need more disappointing, high-maintenance celebrities. I'm thankful for celebrities who believe. We don't need more high-profile athletes and politicians who disappoint us in the end. I'm thankful when they do believe. Christianity does not need more preachers aspiring for some sort of national or global platform. And I'm not jealous when God raises up people to preach the gospel of the world. That's wonderful. But remember the rich young ruler? That's the kind of character the disciples wanted on their side. The guy with the money, the guy with the time, the guy with the political power. And Jesus sent him packing and called the little child to himself. Jesus' brother James is going to put a question to us on Wednesday night in our study of James. James is going to ask us, what are you going to do when the richest guy in town shows up at your church together with a poor man? And whom are we tempted to view as more profitable? Whom will we serve? Our innate tendency, James says, is to, show, is to show deference to the rich man. But actually, James reminds us, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom? Here's what Jesus is after. I want the poor foot-washing slaves. Y'all come into my kingdom. What Christianity really needs in every generation and in every church is servants who model the service of Jesus for his disciples. That's his application. So can I encourage you to read through that this next week and prepare your hearts for communion? Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the Lord Jesus Christ, and we thank you for this delightful scene, this instructive scene. And Lord, we have spent two weeks working through the scene where Jesus washes the disciples' feet. And I pray that as we move on, the lesson of this passage will not be lost on us and that we will leave here today with a greater estimation for the Lord Jesus Christ. And Lord, for anyone here today who may not yet have embraced Jesus, and like the disciples, they have read the Gospels and don't understand him, We pray that your spirit would take this passage and send it flying into his or her heart like an arrow, like a sword that it will divide asunder. Lord, it will convict and that you will draw that person, man or woman, to the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray it for Christ's sake. Amen.